You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn East. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Peace be with you, Sojourn East, whether you're joining us live, joining us later today, or joining us later in the week. I want to know that we're grateful that you've joined us. We're nearing the end of our series in the book of Philippians, and the text we're looking at today is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, in which the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, less than ideal circumstances, I thank you for it, though. Your word, it's always timely. There's so much here for us to feast upon. There's things here that offer great encouragement, things here that will challenge us. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, we would receive these words. We would be shaped. We would be confronted and comforted by them. And that we might continue to live and grow in living into the vision you have for our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I recently watched the new Tom Hanks movie, Greyhound. It's about a World War II Navy captain who leads a convoy of ships across the Atlantic while under constant attack by German U-boats. And I, I love studying and learning about World War II. I love Tom Hanks. So I love the film just right off the bat. But it's a great film. And part of the brilliance of the film is its simplicity. The dialogue is very straightforward. Throughout the film, it's mainly one to three-word sentences like torpedo or rightful rudder or evasive maneuvers. Uh, There's not a bunch of witty dialogue. That's not the magic of the film. The magic of the film is Tom Hanks' performance and really the characters, uh, a historical figure that he plays. Throughout the film, Hanks' character is calm. He's direct. He's resolved, no matter what's happening around him. He's got this settledness about him, even as U-boats are flying by and torpedoes are coming at him. 
And he, he's not a John Wayne kind of character where he experiences no fear and, you know, he's a man of steel. He's got very real fear and emotions throughout the film that points you can tell that he's feel, feeling very real distress. And yet in the midst of that, he embodies this stability, this non-anxious presence. And he continues to for days. As I watched the film, I couldn't help but think we need this kind of leadership now more than we've ever needed it. Then I pressed in a little further and thought, I want to grow in becoming this kind of a leader. I want to deepen in being this kind of a person who embodies a stable, non-anxious, calm presence, no matter what kind of chaos is surrounding us. Now, at first glance, the text that we just read together, it, it seems almost kind of scattered, like random closing thoughts from Paul, kind of like a preacher at the end of the sermon who's just trying to get everything else they wanted to say into the sermon. But if you press in, there's, there's actually a theme woven throughout. And what Paul is doing here at the end is he's holding forth a vision for the kinds of people that he wants the Philippians and in turn us to become. He wants us to be, verse 1, people who stand firm. Verses 2 and 3, people who bring peace where there's conflict. Verse 4, he talks about being a people marked by joy. 5, reasonableness. 6, that we're not ruled by anxiety. Then near the end, he talks about we're cultivating our thoughts and our thought life. That Paul, he wants us to be a people who embody this stable, non-anxious presence in this world regardless of circumstances, and we do this because of the peace of God and the joy of God in our life. And as is always the case with God's word, this is a timely, timely text for us. With all that's happening in our world, all the uncertainty about the coming weeks and months, whether it's decisions about school or what's going to take place in the fall, how hard it is to make plans, I know it's tempting to want to check out, to disengage, to just retreat from it all. But that's not the need of the hour. The need of the hour is for men and women who will stand firm, who will be a voice of reason, sobriety, faith, confidence in God, wherever they are and whatever circumstances God has placed them in. And so maybe for you, that's in your home. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe it's with your family or your marriage, your community group. But I want to ask you, what would it look like for you to be a steady, settled, stable, non-anxious presence wherever God has you. Isn't that what you want? It's what I want. To be a person who can offer clarity and direction and bring peace, not added anxiety. Paul tells us, he, he lets us know the secret of it all, of being these types of people, because he starts chapter 4 with the word therefore, which means he's pointing back to what he's written. What he wrote right before that is, we are citizens of heaven. And then earlier than that, he talks about how we've been justified by faith. That therefore, the reason we can live into this identity, the reason we can be these kinds of people, is because in Christ, we've been given the peace of God. And the way we live lives marked by stability and clarity is we live into and then we live out of that peace that we have with God. And this theme of peace, that's the theme woven throughout this section. Paul tells us three things, basically. He wants us to be a people who practice peacemaking, who bring peace to our relationships. Number two, he wants us to be a people who aren't ruled by our fears, but we pray our fears. 
And then number three, last thing he says is he wants us to be a people who know how to protect and cultivate our thoughts. And so we're going to look at this text under those three headings, beginning with practicing peacemaking. Verse two, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, this is the person he's writing to, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, a piece of context that would be helpful, when Paul would write these letters, the church would gather and then someone would read the letter out loud to the entire congregation. And so people would be on the edge of their seats waiting to hear what Paul's saying. And I wonder what it felt like to be Yodia or Syntyche when your names got mentioned by Paul. I mean, he calls them out publicly because they're at odds with one another. And we don't know the nature of their disagreement, but we do know just from looking at the text that Paul held both of these women in very high esteem. He loved them. They were co-laborers in the gospel. And we, we can deduce, because we know Paul, that whatever the source of their disagreement was, it wasn't a core doctrine of the faith. And yet it was still significant. I think, honestly, it's a grace that we don't know the specifics of what their conflict was, because if we did, we'd lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think the bigger picture we see here is that sometimes believers, even mature believers who are discipled by Paul, sometimes they can end up at odds with one another. Sometimes they can find themselves in deep disagreement and living in conflict. And so as Paul's writing to the Philippians and he's thinking about the church and he's, he, word's gotten back to him about this conflict between these two women, he confronts it head on because Paul knows, and we all know this, that few things have the power to rob us of peace and joy than being in conflict with others, especially if we're in contact, conflict with other believers, mature believers. Conflict that upsets us, it distracts us, it can easily dominate our thinking as we're shadow boxing those we disagree with in our mind. And not only does this create chaos internally, not, does this, not only does this fuel our own anxiety and rob us of a sense of stability, it can also bleed out into the larger community. I mean, think about the last time you were in dis deep disagreement with someone, and, and maybe that's right now. Think about how it just kind of leaks out in your conversations. And then factions are drawn, people pick sides, and all of a sudden, instead of the church being a community of peace, it's a community marked by conflict, fear. And that's why Paul addresses this issue head on. But what I find fascinating in this text is that Paul, he doesn't tell them that they have to agree. He doesn't say, you guys have to agree, one of you has to die to your convictions, no. He says, you need to agree in the Lord. And agreeing in the Lord, that might seem like a small distinction, but it's important. Agreeing in the Lord means you can maintain your convictions and you can even continue to disagree, but you need to remember that you're part of a bigger story that transcends your own individual stories. You need to remember, he says in verse three, that your names are written in the book of life. And that's a much bigger truth that unites you than whatever these secondary things are that divides you. Paul's saying, keep perspective. Remember your citizenship is in heaven. And so actively pursue peace. And others of you get in there and help them be reconciled because you're never gonna be a people who stand firm 
when you're feeding conflict. Paul expands upon this idea in verse 5, where he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And if there was ever a verse for this cultural moment, this would be the verse. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the word translated as reasonableness, it's a big word in the original language. It means everything from kind and courteous to gentle and generous to tolerant. One pastor defined it as a radical even-temperedness. Paul's saying, let this radical even-temperedness, let this gentleness and this generosity, so gentle that you're not harsh and abrasive with people and generous, that you think the best of other people. He says, let this be known to everyone. And I looked it up, and everyone there, it means everyone. Those inside the church and those outside the church. Paul is saying that the world should look on Christians and their initial gut response should be those people are gentle and generous. They're courteous and kind. And I wonder if people listened into your conversations or viewed your social media posts, if that's something they would say, yeah, that defines them. They're reasonable human beings. They're courteous. They're gentle human beings. Now, I know some of you are already in your mind protesting, well, we're supposed to stand for truth. Absolutely. And Paul's not calling us to be spineless individuals. He's not calling us to not stand up for that which is true, good, and honorable. What Paul is saying is, don't let secondary matters turn you into a jerk. Don't even let primary matters turn you into a jerk. Don't wage war against other people. And this is such a word for us, I mean, before this season, but especially in this season, it's been revealed that there's something about the American church that loves conflict. Like We love arguing. We love contending. And a lot of times we do it under the guise of our spirituality, that we're going to contend for the truth and contend against people we disagree with. And, and I can't help but see this thing in the church where we tend to make every issue a central issue whether it's gathering or not gathering, mass or not mass, school, you name it, there's this, this almost instinctual thing in a lot of Christians in America where we, we want to claim Luther's claim, right? Like, here I stand, I can do no other. And we forget that Luther, he did say that, but he was talking about the core issue of the faith. He wasn't talking about mass. He wasn't talking about school. He wasn't talking about a number. He was talking about we are justified by faith alone. And grace alone. The big emphasis Paul puts here, and he really puts throughout the book of Philippians, and this is a word for us, church, is that we should do everything in our power to live at peace, to be peacemakers, to be gentle, to be people who heal fractures, not widen them. Paul echoes this in Romans 12, 18, where he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The question is why? And the answer is because we got bigger fish to fry. Because God's given us a mission. And because he's given us truth to proclaim that the world desperately needs. And Paul knows that when we fight over everything, what we truly prioritize gets lost. So he's saying, be reasonable. Be gentle. Be generous. As you are able, be easy to get along with. 
I think for us, this means in an age filled with hot takes from everything to politics to mass or whatever, that we, we stay out of the fray, at least the contentiousness and the, just the, <clears throat> the venom that's often spewed. You know, my wife and I are talking, a lot of you are facing schooling decisions right now. Are you going to send your kids back? Are you going to send your kids to some kind of virtual schooling? Are you going to homeschool? Which one? And as we were talking about it and I was looking at this verse, I thought, you know what? Those all seem like reasonable decisions. We're in the midst of a global pandemic that none of us, unlike anything any of us have ever been through before. Those all seem pretty reasonable. You might have strong convictions about what's best for your family. Praise God that he gave those to you. But you don't need to force those upon everyone else. All options seem reasonable. I want to encourage us to resist the urge to be keyboard warriors, to stay grounded in the larger story. Paul says rejoice in verse 4. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, don't get wrapped up in these conflicts. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice that sin will not have the final say. Rejoice that God is present and active in this world and he has made amazing, wonderful, mind-blowing promises to us and he always keeps his promises. Rejoice. Don't fight. First way, we grow in people who can stand firm and be stable, non-anxious presences. As we make peace, we practice peace. We're quick to settle disputes. Second thing he says, we also, we know what to do with our fear. We pray our fears. Verse five to seven, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to be careful here when we talk about things like anxiety. It's something I've struggled with. What Paul is saying here is not that anxiety is always a sin or that worry is always irrational. I mean, Jesus himself said, don't worry about tomorrow. And it wasn't because there's nothing to worry about. It's because you've got enough stuff to worry about today. Fear, worry, it's often a God-given gift that keeps us alive. I mean, have you ever come face-to-face with the charging bison, like running at you? Because I have. The fear kept me alive. I ran faster than I've ever run in my life, fleeing from it. Fear is not always a bad thing. But fear, worry, anxiety, especially when it's persistent, and especially when it isn't because there is a a large beast charging at you. You just feel it. It's internal. It's often the canary in the coal mine. It's our soul's way of telling us that something's off or something's wrong and we need to fix it fast. And again, if you've got a beast charging at you, you know what to do. You know that you need to run. But a lot of times we feel that something's off. We feel this anxiety and we don't know what to do with it. We don't have a very clear or specific action. And when that happens, it's very easy for that fear to turn into worry, to turn into anxiety. It starts to eat away at us. Sometimes it paralyzes us. Fear can pull us under in those situations if we don't know how to respond. 
I think a lot of times in this moment, a lot of you who feel this desire to disengage, that's, that's often a manifestation of worry and anxiety and fear, that you just want to retreat from it all. The problem is, when we let anxiety rule the day, not only does it rob us of joy, it also keeps us from stepping into what God has called us to step into. It keeps us from being the kind of people that God wants us to be. It keeps us from serving and being a voice of hope and offering our hands to help. All of that being said, in this text, Paul, he's not just saying, put on a brave face, push all your worries, fears, and anxieties down. Instead, Paul is telling us what to do with those things when they arise. What do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you're anxious? It sure seems like there's a lot of things for us to fear and be anxious about today. What do you do with them? And Paul, he says, don't, don't sit in that anxiety. Instead, pray. Don't sit with those fears. Don't, you know, one of my friends said anxiety is chewing on the fat of fear. It's just chewing on it again and again and again. Paul is saying, don't get stuck in this cycle where you're just thinking and thinking and you, you know, you become self-absorbed and you lose your focus. Instead, when the fear emerges, pray. Turn your fears into fuel for prayer. So you feel afraid, whatever it is you're afraid about, use that as a catalyst to go pray. Pray about those things. Bring it to the Lord. And Paul tells us why we should do this, because the Lord is near. He's present. He's coming again. He's near both spatially and he's near in, in the history of redemption. And Paul is saying nothing in our world that's happening in your life or in our world, nothing that comes to pass catches him off guard. He's well aware. And so take your fears to him in prayer. Paul says that when we do this, God will answer our prayers, but he, he doesn't say he will answer them in the way we often think. He doesn't say, present your request to God and God will give you the desires of your heart, at least not here. He says, bring your prayers to God uh, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say God will grant you your requests. He says God will give you peace. You bring your prayers to him and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, which I think Paul's saying it's, it's beyond human comprehension. And I felt this. And I imagine if you've been in these situations before, you felt it where you're worried, you're anxious about something very real. You pray about it. And then you do feel a sense of peace, even though nothing's changed. No circumstances have changed. But you experience this peace of God. That surpasses all understanding. And you're able to rejoice. Paul says that peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The, the word translated guard there, it's the word for garrison. Paul is saying when you do this, when you bring your fears and worries to God, that God will send basically a garrison of, you know, a military detachment that will surround your heart to protect you. to give you hope, to give you peace. 
This is a, a longer conversation when we think about things like anxiety, but my first response is always, do you pray your fears? Because that's what Paul's encouraging us to. We have a lot of fear right now. When was the last time you prayed your fears and just said, Lord, this is what I'm afraid of? Give me peace. Give me confidence. Give me boldness. I mean, I, what I loved about that movie, Greyhound, is Hank's character. I mean, he's got all these things to fear, but he's able to stand up and still be present. Courage is not, you know, the absence of fear. It's being able to persevere in the midst of it. Paul says, pray your fears. Lastly, the last way we can be a people of peace, people who bring stability to those around us, as Paul says, we need to protect our thoughts. Verse 8, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul right here, he's saying, be careful what you think about. Direct what you think about. Guard your thoughts. Guard your mind because the mind is the portal to the soul. And what we pay attention to and what we fill our minds with will shape not only our own souls, but they will shape our trajectory in life and come to bear on those around us. And, and we all know this, but there are things that we can think about and dwell upon that will enlarge our souls and enlarge our capacity for God. And there are things that we can think about and dwell upon and consume that will shrink our souls. Paul is saying, be intentional about where you put your mind. Put your mind on those things that are going to make you a bigger soul, a deeper soul. And so while I think this extends well beyond what we should and shouldn't watch, it certainly includes it. And Paul is talking about what we consume. And when I was a young Christian, the simple rule was you shouldn't watch R-rated movies. At times, that felt very legalistic. These days, I'm like, well, there could be worse rules, you know, to some extent. Like, we should have some, some guards up about what we consume. We don't seem to err too much on the legalism side. Instead, we seem to err on the side of consuming may probably too much. But I think just choosing a rating, it's simplistic. Because it's not about the rating, it's about the content. I mean, we're being fed things all the time. And I think great questions to ask is, what is being celebrated in this? What's being honored? What's being elevated? Because there can be some really intense movies, rated R, that celebrate very good things. And there can be some kids' shows that I think celebrate bad things or denigrate good things. You know, I've noticed this tendency, there, there's this new genre of shows out where there's no good guys, there's no protagonist, it's all bad guys. And the show starts here and it just goes downhill season after season. And it gets more depressing and more dark until the end, everyone dies or something similar happens. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch those shows. I refer to them as the stories of perpetual descent. It's just downhill forever. But if that's what we're giving our minds to, if that's what we're thinking about, if that's what we're giving the best part of our attention to, how will that shape our minds and how will that shape our souls? If we are 
giving the best part of our attention to divisive, inflammatory rhetoric on cable news or social media, if we fix our minds on things that are filled with hatred, self-righteousness, jealousy, and revenge, what is that going to do to us? What will that do to our souls? I mean, one of the hard truths that I learned growing up, I'll never forget, in college, I started gaining weight and I couldn't figure out why. And I was eating a pint of ice cream and talking to someone. And I was like, I keep gaining weight and I don't know why. And they're like, well, you're eating a pint of ice cream, like right out of the pint. What do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, for a long time, I could eat whatever I want, no consequences. I think a lot of times stuff's going on in our souls and in our lives, or we're feeling certain ways about God and our relationship with him. And we're like, I don't know why this is happening. And yet we're feeding off of things fueled by anger and hatred and divisiveness, things that are dark, that, that aren't just or commendable or honorable, things that do not turn our eyes to the goodness of God and what he has done and is doing in this world. Instead, we're feeding off all of the stuff that's not good for us, and then we find ourselves jealous, angry, anxious, worried, despairing. Paul is saying, think about your thoughts. Think about what you consume. Protect your thoughts. Not in some simplistic, moralistic way that I'm better than these people because I don't watch this or I don't consume that, but because Paul wants us to be a people who care about who we're becoming. And what we consume shapes who we become. And that's why Paul encourages us to fix our thoughts on what is honorable. And you could, you could spend time with every single one of these things. But really what Paul is saying here is think about the goodness of God and how it's demonstrated in our world and other people and dwell upon those things. Think about who you're becoming and fix your thoughts on those things that are from God and of God. And I've heard it said that in the end, this is what's really hard for us right now, is we don't have much control over what's happening. It's hard. We like to control things. But the reality is in the end, there are only two things we can control. We can control our thoughts and we can control our actions. Pretty much everything else is beyond and out of our control. Paul is saying here, I want you to control your thoughts. I want you to put your mind on things that will lead you to become the kind of people that God wants you to be. And so this is time in his word. It's time in prayer. It's conversations you have with other people. It's music you listen to. But what you consume is shaping you profoundly. And so I encourage you this week, pay attention. Just pay attention. Ask questions. What's being celebrated and honored? What's being denigrated? What values are being lifted up? Pay attention to what you watch and then pay attention to how it affects your soul. Does, does it enlarge your soul? Does it lead you to love others, to show mercy, to long after God? Or does it just throw logs on the fire of your anxiety and fears, your anger, your jealousy, your self-righteousness? I want to end how we, we began. Paul, he lays forth this vision. He says, I want you to be a non-anxious people living into the bigger story that you're a part of. And that's the need of the hour. It's always the need of the hour. And the way we become those people is not by changing our circumstances. 
It's by living into and grabbing hold of the peace that God has given us in Christ. In one of my favorite verses, John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, when we come to the Lord's table, that's what we are celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that in Christ, we have been given peace with God. It was secured not by our righteousness or our good acts. It was secured by his sacrifice on our behalf. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And I encourage you, if you're at home and you have access to bread, wine, grape juice, to to take part, to remember, to celebrate what Christ has done. This is also a time for us to remember that Jesus has overcome the world and that he's given us this meal and he's promised that he's coming again to share a meal with us. And so whatever you're experiencing right now, be reminded of the goodness of God, of his promises, and of the fact that Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.